Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Uh, Today we're continuing in our series, AD 30, or The Life of Christ, and our message today is probably a familiar passage to you, part of it, and then part that may not be so familiar, uh, and I've entitled it, Help Wanted. I love an honest atheist. Atheist Angel Eduardo argues that keeping our beliefs to ourselves, while avoiding confrontation and promoting harmony, is harmful and immoral. Beliefs are the engines of our actions, he says. They're foundational to how we think and behave, and they have consequences. And he admits that when atheists tell Christians and people of other religions to keep their beliefs to themselves, they really don't grasp what they're asking us to do. And he gets that. He says this, we rarely think about this from the perspective of a believer. For them, every encounter is of paramount importance. They are truly convinced that you are in danger and they possess the keys to salvation. Their proselytizing or converting is a moral act even when we consider it a nuisance as atheists. However misguided or wrong they might be, their actions are motivated by a desire to make our lives and our afterlives better. It's hard to imagine how the consciences of the ethically devout are burdened by every skeptic that they have failed to convert. How much worse would be that guilt if they'd instead been unwilling to try? So he gets it that we would feel guilty if we weren't trying to convert our neighbors. Eduardo wants atheists and skeptics to be more understanding of people like us. Imagine us atheists indifferently watching the religious waste their lives believing nonsense. What would it say about us if we didn't try to talk them out of it? To help them save what little time they have left on this mortal coil because we've chosen to keep our beliefs, or in our case, our unbelief, to ourselves. Sure, we're being polite in the moment. We're exercising tolerance in our own myopic way. We are living and letting live. But at what cost? He says, not one I'm willing to pay. I love what he says there. I love an honest atheist or anybody in an opposition group to Christianity that actually understands the strengths and weaknesses of their own beliefs and understands why others behave as they do. Angel Arduaro, atheist, he gets me. He understands me. He understands why I might strike up a religious conversation with him on an airplane. He expects me to witness He would be surprised if we didn't because in his mind, he understands our beliefs and he understands that we have to do that. That's a great atheist. Today in China, there is a state church, actually a state-approved church, that is actually quite biblical in many ways and it is called the Three-Self Church. You can visit one if you go to China. You would actually enjoy it. You might find the service to be very similar to a service in a church in Canada or in the United States, North America, maybe Europe. Hymns, Bible readings, prayer, a sermon based on the Bible. You say, wait a minute, this this is China. Aren't they persecuting Christians there? 
not, not these Christians, not the ones in the three-self church, because the three-self church, the Chinese state-sponsored church, has agreed to and made a commitment to the government of China that they won't evangelize, they won't proselytize. So they exist in peace with the state. But think about this. There are well over 50 million Chinese Christians, and this is a little bit of an older illustration, so I would guess that's a lot more now. So 50 to 100 million Chinese Christians that refuse to be part of the three-self church. They meet in houses. They hide. They're in the underground church, and they are persecuted. And the question is, why? They can go to the three-self church and hear a biblical message. Here's why. They believe that you cannot be called a Christian if you do not evangelize. That's the issue for them. It is a big enough issue to them to give up a peaceful Sunday morning every weekend and hide because they know the Bible commands them to try to reach the world with the gospel. And the Three Self Church has promised they will not try to do that. So atheists get it. At least Angel Eduardo does. He gets it. Witnessing makes sense. The underground church in China gets it. In fact, it's the only reason they're underground. They don't have to be. But they get it that witnessing is necessary to be Christian. Yet how much do we struggle with it? To prioritize it, to believe it's really our greatest priority, it's not easy. And it's, it's not easy for any of us. I, I may have the gift of evangelism, I'm not sure, but as a kid, I, I can remember witnessing to one of my best friends very, very awkwardly, as I recall, witnessing to other people. I always cared about people's eternal destinies, but it doesn't mean witnessing is always easy. In fact, I'll give you an illustration of maybe what was wrong with my heart. When I was in <clears throat> Bible college, this was 1875, the Civil War was just over, the South was enduring a rebuild, reconstructionism. Bible colleges were opening up in the U.S. for the first time in their history. And I was at a missions conference at Northland Baptist Bible College. And missions conferences, you would maybe learn about different <clears throat> missions agencies. You would have people, uh, maybe missionary speakers. Um, you know, it was really quite an educational process. And it was, it was quite wonderful for a group of Bible college students who are trying to figure out what God wants them to do with their lives. And back when I went to Bible college, they actually were Bible colleges. They were training people for ministry. It just wasn't like an elective that you could take in a broader college campus. And so they were also scary, extremely scary for all of us. Emotional invitations at the end, the fear that God would call me to a grass hut in Timbuktu, a life of, you know, in my case, singleness, that would be the greatest fear, that I would never get a woman to say yes. It was hard enough as it is in North America to get one to say yes. And so during those invitations at the end of a sermon, you know, we're singing 29 verses of I Surrender All, you're clutching the back of the wooden bench in the chapel in fear that God is going to ask you to go to some place you don't want to go to share the greatest message in history with people who've never heard it. It's not easy sometimes for us. 
And, and in many of those situations, it's interesting, I was in Bible college, I wanted to be a pastor. I didn't personally want to go overseas. It just wasn't on my heart. I cared about lost people, but I cared about them more in North America. And I've always been a huge supporter of missions, but I was afraid God was going to call me into missions. And I was one of the people signing up to go into ministry. We have a labor shortage. And it's not new. Matthew 9 talks about that. I'm going to ask you to turn there. It's on page 7 in your New Testament. So about the last third of these Bibles in the pews is the New Testament. starts over with page 1. So Matthew, page 7, Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. I'm going to read a little bit into the next chapter as well. First part of this is going to be very familiar. Matthew 9:35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease, every kind of sickness. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot, and one, uh, the one who betrayed him. Now these 12, Jesus sent out after instructing them. Now here's, I wanted to read through this because I wanted you to see this because we're going to have to explain this. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We're going to come back to that and why that is stated there. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Don't acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. And as you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. If not, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of your house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. And we'll stop there. Some interesting things there that you might say might not be completely applicable, and we're going to walk through that. But the first point is the one that we're all familiar with. There's always a ready harvest, and unfortunately, a labor shortage. This comment is not unique to uh, Matthew. It appears both in Matthew and Luke in this context that there are few laborers. In Matthew, what's interesting is in Matthew, he's actually sending out the 12, and you see this right before that. In Luke, he's sending out 70, and you see it right in that context. So much of the rest of the text is the same. Matthew adds some other things. So here's what commentators struggle with. This actually may, may be the same event, and Matthew just describes the 12, while Luke describes all 70, and the 12 might be part of the 70. That's a possibility. It might be two different events, and if Jesus is doing two commissioning services, of course he would use similar language. So we're not really sure. But in both passages, the labor shortage is in focus as Jesus is doing this commissioning service. So here's how Matthew describes it. Jesus has been busy. 
He is going in all the cities and villages, Matthew says. It was exhausting. Miracles are accompanying him everywhere. And at this stage, it's sort of the Jesus of Nazareth show. He hasn't sent anybody else out, so Jesus is really doing this on his own. He is the kingdom of heaven at this point. He is the Jesus movement. He's got followers, but it's him and him alone. The crowds grew. Jesus saw them, and his heart was broken for them, and he had compassion. And This is actually the strongest Greek word for pity. One commentator says it's compassion which moves a person to the deepest depths of their being. In fact, the Greek word compassion doesn't talk about our hearts. We think our heart is sort of the center of our being. In the Greek, it's sort of your bowels or your guts. And it's as if Jesus was seeing these crowds and he's sort of sick to his stomach about their plight and the great need and the limited resources to reach them. And so two analogies come from his lips. One of them, he, he says, they're like, they're like sheep without, without a shepherd. They're helpless, they're lost, they're in danger from outsiders, they're without direction. And then the other one is this unharvested field that he describes. It's like a field of grain. The people in the world are like a field of grain. It's, it's a ripe field, the heads of grain are full, and there's a time limit during which the harvest must happen or it's going to be wasted. Delay is not an option. Laborers must be hired and sent into the fields or it will be lost. Or in this case, the application, they will be lost forever. So you've got a movement of God. God has entered humanity in the person of Jesus. Evidence is clear from his power and authority that he is who he says he is. And it's time to message the movement. It's time for the movement to be more than just Jesus. So he's going to get a group of people together with a common theme, a common messenger uh, message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is here. And when those messengers are sent so that they'll know it's part of the Jesus movement, they're going to have this common message. They're also going to be accompanied by power and authority just like Jesus, which would give them credibility. Everyone would see this is the Jesus movement because these guys were with him and they're doing the same incredible stuff. So Jesus is now ready to go viral. Time to storm the gates of hell, as he said elsewhere. Time to announce the presence and power of Messiah, who is God in his case. So Jesus is trying to analyze, you know, where are we at here? See a great need? So he gets on his cell phone and he calls his PR department, or his HR department. You know, of course, yes, I can hold. It's always been that way. No, I don't think there'll be any long-distance charges. We just changed our plan. And so, yeah, Hannah, good Jewish girl's name, Hannah, Jesus here, I just want to get the count. I just want to get the count. No, I know about the 12. They, they spend every night with me. I know about them. Yes, I've got my eye on Judas. I know we might have a problem there. I, I get it. So how many people have taken Outreach 101? 70? 70. 70. That's it. That's not enough. That's not enough. After all of the miracles and all of the crowds, 70. And today, Jesus is having the same conversation. Second, 
we carry the message which creates a reception of or rejection of God's activity. Now, I read the rest of that passage, not all of it, I read part of the passage, and as, as you were hearing some of the things I was saying, you're probably thinking, well, that, those, are, that's a little, those are some odd instructions that Jesus gave the 12 there, and, or the 70 in Luke, but particularly in Matthew, because Matthew says some things that Luke doesn't say. And, and I'm going to say this, and don't get me wrong, but Matthew 10, in my opinion, is not completely applicable to you and me today. The, the harvest is plenteous, the laborers are few, that is. But Matthew 10 has some unique things that kind of occurred in history that I want to explain. This was a unique time in salvation history. And they had, those first apostles, had a unique message. It wasn't about the gospel as you and I know it. Jesus hadn't died and risen again. There was no gospel of Jesus Christ. There was no forgiveness of our sins through what Jesus did on the cross. I would even argue it wasn't yet about Jesus as God. It was about Jesus as Messiah. And the reason I say that is what I highlighted when I was reading. So I want you to put your theological thinking caps on here and think through the progression of salvation history. He's sending out the 12, and this is what he says. Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't enter any city of the Samaritans. Huh. Seems a little restrictive. Seems a little uncaring. But rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and tell them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, here's why I need you to put your thinking cap on. We're going to do a little theory here, okay? Why only to Israel? Well, if you were to read scholars on this, commentators on this, some would say, well, it's because they wouldn't know how to reach the others. They're sort of new at this. And I just think that is a horrible answer and really theologically naive. Here's what I think is going on. Now, I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure of this. Old Testament has promised a Messiah to Israel. For hundreds, thousands of years, Israel has been promised a king who will then reign from Jerusalem over the whole world. So in my opinion, Jesus is telling his 12 to just go to the Israelites because they are being formally offered their Messiah as promised in the Old Testament. First you had John the Baptist, now you've got Jesus. That's what the Old Testament said. There'd be a prophet, then there would be the Messiah. And you're gonna get the kingdom of God offered to you. Now, now here's where that gets tricky. Because I wanna take you down a little potential path of history that never happened. What if Israel as a nation at that point would have embraced Jesus? What if Jesus wouldn't have had 70 to go out and preach and heal? What if he would have had 7,000? And what if Israel really repents and really embraces Jesus and they see him as the promised Messiah? Theoretically, salvation history would look very different. Theoretically, okay, so just follow me here. Theoretically, Israel would have been restored to a place of blessing and power as promised in the Old Testament. Theoretically, Jesus would reign from Jerusalem at that point. Theoretically, he would establish righteousness on the earth. Theoretically, an earthly kingdom like Old Testament Israel would have flourished. Now, somehow, Jesus would have still had to die in order to forgive us of our sins, but his resurrection would have been followed up by no ascension, no church age, the end times with Israel on the world stage because that's what's promised in the Old Testament. 
All the promises basically say that. That's the theory based on hundreds of Old Testament verses. They carried a message that that kingdom was at hand. And the response to that message changed the future. They rejected it. The response to the gospel that we carry today does the same. It doesn't change the future of nations and Jesus ruling on earth, but it changes personal eschatology, which is where we end up when we die. Third, Jesus explains the laborer's handbook, and it's not what you'd expect. Now, many believe that Matthew has combined some sayings from multiple sermons and settings in this chapter. This is going to bother some of you, because when you read your Bible, you're thinking, okay, Jesus preached a sermon, he said all these things, and he might have, but it's also more likely he said maybe verses 1 through 15 or 1 through 23 at that point, and then Matthew pulled a bunch of other sayings of Jesus from other contexts and piled it on and just did a section on Jesus' words to his disciples about what it looks like to follow him and go out and witness. That would not be unusual for them to write that way or to combine things like that. And We shouldn't look at it as less than the Word of God. It just means sometimes they group materials together, and it wasn't always in one setting. That's probably happening here because if you look at verse 5 where it says, go only to the house of Israel, then you go to verses 18 and 19, he talks about them being turned over by kings and governors in Gentile courts. So that doesn't make a lot of sense. First he says go to Israel, and then he says in verses 18 and 19 you're going to be persecuted by the Gentiles. So it's probably that parts of this has just been added to it about what it looks like when we go out with the message of God. He's putting together the laborer's handbook, sort of the best of Jesus, and what it looks like when we go into this harvest field. So I think some of these early principles really applied, as I said a moment ago, to this early formal offer of Messiah to Israel. So he's got these, he's literally sending out this group of traveling preachers. They're only going to Jews. They're staying in people's homes. It's, it's a temporary offer. It might be a few months. I don't know. They're performing miracles. They're living apart from their homes and families. And then after that section, Matthew starts including other material, which I call the laborer's handbook. Now, normally an employee handbook reflects expectations and benefits. A lot of positive stuff. Jesus, laborer's handbook is what I would call heavily leaning towards the negative. And I think it's one of the reasons for the labor shortage. Let me give you a few examples. The laborer's handbook. What happens to me will happen to you. That's not very encouraging, Jesus. A disciple is not above a teacher nor a slave above his master. It's enough for the disciples that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they've called the head of the house Beelzebub, or Satan, how much more will they malign the members of his household? What Jesus is warning people who take him seriously and follow him with is this. How I'm treated, which ultimately meant the crucifixion and people accusing him of being empowered by Satan because they didn't believe he was God, he said is what you should expect as well. What happens to me is going to happen to you. Now, the fact that we live in a free country and, and a free continent for the most part, I mean, that, that's great. But I need to tell you that the people who really followed Jesus early on were expecting to die for their faith. And the fact that we're not, well, we should just be thankful for that. But we signed up 
in a movement of martyrs. That's what we actually signed up for. Lucky us that we're not experiencing that. What happens to me is going to happen to you. And so then Jesus wants you to know that I care about you no matter what happens. And so he says some things to make them believe it's, it's going to be okay even though some bad things might happen to you. This is where we have these verses, are not two sparrows sold for a cent and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? This is where Jesus says the very hairs of your head are all numbered, which doesn't seem difficult to me at all. I'm not impressed with that. And he says, so do not fear you're more valuable than many sparrows that are sold. This is, where, this is where those things appear. I think similar things in a context about worry, but here about when we go out and try to reach other people with the gospel and we suffer for it, just know that I care about you no matter what happens. And bad things will happen is what he was telling them. Third, there are no silent Christians. That's the third thing he says in his laborer's handbook. And here's sort of some scary verses for those of us who think, well, that witnessing is sort of an optional thing. I don't really have the gift of evangelism. 32 and 33, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. What Jesus is saying here, part of the laborer's handbook, I mean, this is just who we are. Christ followers, don't, we don't keep our mouths shut. We, we, we can't keep our mouths shut. The, that's why the Chinese don't belong to the three-self church who are really following the Bible because they get it. Witnessing is so much a part of who we are. We have the greatest message in the history of the universe. How can we keep it to ourselves? No matter whether it's inconvenient in a, in a modern culture or not, we have to figure out ways to message Jesus to the world around us. We're not here just to sort of appease everybody and just get along. In fact, Jesus says that in the next one, I'm not a unifying historic figure, his, uh, his fourth I am not a unifying historic figure. When he says in verse 34, don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He talks about how we need to love him above everything. And what he's saying is, I'm going to be a divisive figure as you try to tell people about me. And then he says, I expect absolute commitment. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That's not a very encouraging list, is it? You signed up for that so I, I, didn't, I didn't know that. Nobody, when they were giving me the gospel, talked about Matthew 10. Well, I'm sorry. Now you know. Someone did a bait and switch on me. They just told me all rainbows and roses and heaven and forgiveness and all the goodies we get from God through Jesus. Well, I, I'm sorry about that, too. They were wrong. They were wrong to only tell you about that. That's not the gospel. It's part of the gospel. 
So the three self church in China, I should say the underground church in China is right that we have to witness to truly be viewed as Christian, that it's so much a part of our faith, yeah, they're right. An angel, Eduardo, my honest atheist friend, is right that of course we need to share what we believe, it's who we are, yep, yep, angel the atheist is right. We who have found Jesus must keep singing what you were taught when you were six. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. I want to walk through a few apps related to this. First, Christians tell others, so where are you in the harvest? It was a regular Monday evening at the Dupree House Senior Living Facility in Cincinnati, Ohio. Hamburgers were on the menu and the dining room was full and Patty Rice, an 87-year-old resident of the facility, was eating her hamburger when she began to choke. But in the nick of time, another resident came to the rescue and did the Heimlich maneuver on Mrs. Rice and saved the day. And that resident was none other than Dr. Henry Heimlich himself, 96 years old. You know, he invented the Heimlich maneuver. And now he's 96 in a nursing home and he's in the dining hall and somebody's choking on the burger and he's, you know, hustling over to her, you know, walking like he did when he was young. Forgive me for you, those of you who are older and feel like you walked that way. I, that, that would, yeah, just forgive me. He's walking over to her and he gets her from behind, you know. She chokes up her burger. Henry Heimlich, 96. He knows, he, he, he knows how to save somebody. And, and you never retire from that. You, you never stop doing that. You never close your eyes to it. It's, it's what we do. We rescue people. But I don't have the gift of evangelism, Paul. And, well, you have the command. I don't have all the gifts, but I'm commanded to do them anyway. You may not have the gift of mercy. You're commanded to be merciful. You may not have the gift of giving. You're commanded to give. You might not have the gift of evangelism. You're commanded to witness. Gifts are just a heightened grace of God in us in certain areas, but it doesn't mean we don't have to do those things anyway. Why don't you start with this? Can you be a friend? Can you actually look in the world around you where people are lonely and isolated and be a good friend? Can you fill your life with people who need God? Anyone can do that. You don't have to shove anything down anyone's throat. You just be the best friend you can be to a group of people who need Jesus and I'm telling you in 10 years they'll be following your God and it'll be the greatest journey you've ever been on. Or keep it to yourself. Third, don't forget why we do it. All people have inestimable value. One of the movies that, you know, you ever get movies that show up on your, you know, your Netflix or your, your cable TV channels and, and you're like, oh, I, I really like that movie, but no, I can't watch it. It just, it just bothers me, you know? 
I've got a few movies like that, like uh, the movie with Mel Gibson, The Patriot. You know, it's, a, it's a, like from American history, Revolutionary War, and he loses his son in that movie. It's just too painful for me to watch. It's a great movie. It's a great war movie, which I really like, or great war movies, but can't watch it. He loses his son. It's just painful. Another hard movie for me to watch is Titanic because it is such an illustration of a group of people who are rescued, who won't go back to people who are drowning and calling out for help. Lifeboats are half full, people are calling for help, they're in freezing waters, and almost every one of those lifeboats, most of them half full, maybe a little less, won't go back. And if you kind of look at the movie and understand a little about history, I think there's some reasons for that. I don't think it was just that they were afraid of being tipped over I think a lot of people that made in the lifeboats didn't really value the lives of others. That was during an era of history. There were a lot of class issues in Europe. And if you look at that boat, it's sort of like the really lower classes are really down in the bottom and the upper classes have the nice stateroom and so on. You know, a lot of these people didn't go back because those people just weren't worth the personal risk. Well, those people, whoever they are, whoever we are, are made in the image of God as eternal beings. And those people, apart from God, are worth everything to him. Third, don't assume the worst. People are spiritually interested. In 2016, the Billy Graham Center commissioned a survey of 2,000 people who don't actively participate in religion. They were, you know, officially called the unchurched. The survey asked these people how they perceive Christians and Christianity. This included their view of Christianity. They're willing to talk about faith with Christians. How they would respond to be invited to a Christian event or to church. Which types of invitations they would potentially accept. And the data found that many unchurched people actually have a positive view of Christians and are open to engaging matters of faith. Uh, 42% in this survey of the unchurched people think that Christianity was good for society. 33% admire their Christian friends' faith if they have them. A lot of them said up to 67%. Two out of three said they'd potentially go to a church event depending on what it was. And The point was, and the longer this survey gets dated, I realize the more secular we are and the more the numbers might go down a bit. I get it. But at that time, Two out of three were willing to potentially go to a church event. There are a massive number of people who are open to being invited, persuaded, and connected to church, to Jesus. Most people are not atheists. Most of them aren't. And, and I just point this out about atheists. Even atheists are thinking about God a lot. Think about that. Even atheists are thinking about God a lot in order to deny him. True atheists, I mean, cats are true atheists, they're not thinking about God. They think they are God. If you own one, you understand what I mean. And you're their creation. But human atheists are thinking about God and the possibility of God. People are open, more than we think. And finally, and I think this is something that we really need to remember. God is in harvest mode too. 
We're not doing this on our own. We're not alone out there trying to reach people with the gospel and, you know, Jesus is, you know, light years away since he got beamed up. It's not all up to us. We're just part of a great process. Jerry Root tells the following story to illustrate how God is already alive and working in the hearts of people around us. He says, my flight was delayed and I met a woman in the Vienna airport. She was wearing a lanyard with a name tag and carrying a clipboard and obviously taking a survey for the airport. When she came to me, I asked her what her name was and she said, Allegra. I said, Allegra, are you from Vienna? She said, no, I grew up in southern Austria. With that answer came the permission to ask what brought you to Vienna. Well, she was a student. And this opened the door to more questions. Where'd she go to school? What was she studying? So after 20 minutes, I knew a good deal about Allegra. I knew her mother abandoned the family to go to Canada with her lover. I knew her father's bitterness was toxic. I knew her brother also attended the University of Vienna, but they were estranged. When I expressed my sadness for what seemed to be a good deal of estrangement from the people closest to her, she said it was far worse than she confided. She told me she had a boyfriend who went to study art in Florence for six months, and he asked her to wait for him, and so she did. Her boyfriend returned the day before I met Allegra, only to inform her that he met somebody better in Florence. I knew where God was wooing her and where God could touch her, and I know the deep-felt need where Allegra was likely to hear the gospel. And after 20 minutes, she hadn't asked me one question. I said to her that I knew that she had a survey to fill out, but that I'd been sent to tell her something. She wondered if I was a plant put there by the airport to see if she was doing her job. I assured her it was nothing like that, but I had something to say to her once she was finished with her survey questions. So she rushed through the airport survey and then put down her pen. She looked me right in the eye and eagerly asked, so what were you supposed to tell me? And knowing that Allegra felt abandoned and betrayed, I said to her, Allegra, the God of the universe knows you and loves you. And he would never abandon you or forsake you. And I said it to her again, Allegra, he loves you. Sometimes it takes three times before the words sink in, so I said it again, Allegra, he loves you. And after the third time, she burst into loud sobs. Everyone in the gate area was looking in our direction. Through her tears, she blurted out, but I've done so many bad things in my life. And I said, Allegra, God knows all about it, and that's why he sent Jesus to die on the cross for all of your sins and to bring you forgiveness and hope. And I was explaining the gospel to ears willing to hear and a heart willing to receive. Now, he was a good evangelist because he knew enough about her to know the touch point for the gospel. That was wise of him. But he also counted on this principle, that God is working before you show up. You're not starting out with, you know, everyone has a cold heart and everyone's, you know, everyone believes there is no God or everyone's hostile to God. No, no, no. All of the people that you care about, that God wants you to touch, are made in his image. And we underestimate that. They're made in his image, which creates spiritual interest and spiritual relatability. They are interested. Their hearts have the same aches that your hearts had before you found Jesus. They just need somebody to sign up.
to tell them. God, we thank you for your word. And I know this is a tough one for all of us because we want to be loved and accepted and embraced and we don't want to be odd or different in any way. We don't want people to think us you know, a little too, too interested in religion, maybe not a safe place to be. But I pray that you would help us to see beyond that and understand how important it is that people connect with you in this lifetime to know that they will spend eternity with you. And I pray that you would help us to be wise, to not assume that we have to offend people or push them away, but to, to learn how to lovingly be in people's lives and care for them and meet their needs and, and share what we believe along the way as good friends would. Help us to be willing to take those next steps in our lives so that we can be effective at reaching the people who are already interested in knowing you but just don't have anybody telling them about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again, and God bless you.